Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today in episode 124, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Dr. Emmett Cunningham. We discuss working in industry as an ophthalmologist, the importance of innovation in retina, and handling industry conflicts of interest. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now honored to be joined by Dr. Emmett Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham has a a number of positions. Um, He's an adjunct professor of ophthalmology at Stanford University. He is the director of uveitis at the California Pacific Medical Center, as well as a partner at West Coast Retina. He also is part of the Proctor Foundation and UCSF for a research capacity as well, in addition to his other titles outside of academic ophthalmology. Dr. Cunningham, thank you so much for joining us from the West Coast. Happy to do it, Jay. So you're a new guest, and you, you've had a very interesting career path we'll get into in a minute, but people like to know origin stories. So were you a born ophthalmologist? Were you someone who went to medical school planning to become an ophthalmologist and then a retinal specialist? And if not, at what point did you, you decide uh, this is what you wanted to do? I started out as an electrical engineer and computer science major and then morphed into medicine after that. And in medicine, for most of medicine, I thought I was going to do something neuroscience related. I have, in fact, I got a PhD in neuroscience during medical school. And initially thought perhaps neurosurgery until I realized that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon so I could call myself a neurosurgeon and not because I wanted to do neurosurgery. And I realized that when I did neurosurgery electives that you know, the outcomes tended to be not, not terrific. The patients, um, many had traumatic disease or life-threatening cancers, most of which uh, the surgeons couldn't help, but that the surgeons had terrible lifestyles and basically lived in the hospital 80 to 100 hours a week. And for all those reasons, I decided against neurosurgery, and and I decided against neurology because it was, at the time, therapeutically pretty impotent. And and so I went into ophthalmology thinking that I could do some surgery, I could do some medicine, I could still be connected to neuroscience. And that's how I ultimately got into ophthalmology. It wasn't, but it was a decision I made, I guess, in third-year medical school. Um, And it wasn't until I went into my residency that I sort of fell in love with um, primarily uveitis, uh, inflammatory and infectious disease, and I, I came to retina through that path primarily. You know, there, there's two interesting parts of that story that if people have listened to prior episodes, they've heard other people talk about. One is neurosurgery. Um, Alan Ho, who you know well, he also, and, and I think someone else had come on, mentioned neurosurgery, and that was something I thought of as well. There seems to be a decent cohort of us who consider neurosurgery in the side in ophthalmology for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned. And then the engineering background, which I'm sure ties into some of the stuff we'll talk about later um, regarding innovations in ophthalmology. You know, Steve Charles, for example, uh, came on. He talked about his background in engineering. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, You specialized in retina, uveitis, inflammatory disease. Why uveitis specifically? What was it about it that attracted you to, uh, to learn more about it? Yeah, so just just to clarify, I've done several fellowships in in ophthalmology. I, in my first was a, a connected to an MPH that I did at Hopkins, and it was a fellowship on preventive health ophthalmology with it was called a PHO with um, Al Somer at the Dana Center, and I did that during my MPH, so I hadn't yet done an ophthalmology residency. And then after my ophthalmology residency, I did a fellowship at UCS Proctor, which was in 
in uveitis and cornea disease. So it was cornea and uveitis. And, and that was a real cornea and uveitis fellowship. I did corneal surgery, transplants, uh, uh, refractive surgery, the whole, the whole nine yards. And then did sort of a, a, a sabbatical, if you will, after I was on faculty at, at UCSF Proctor. And I was there for about eight years. But after I was on faculty, I did a sabbatical at Moorfields for four months where I did both uveitis and medical retinas. So just to be clear, I'm not surgically trained as a retina specialist. I haven't done a, a full one or two year retinal fellowship, but I'm currently in a retina practice and I would say 80% of the uveitis infectious inflammatory disease I see is, is retina based. So I know retina and I particularly know inflammatory and infectious disease, but I'm not card carrying retina specialist in that sense. So, so with that, back to your question. You know, my question would be, you know, your career path, right? So um, I, there are many different career paths people take. Uh, you right now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the intro, you have multiple different kind of affiliations and, and titles, and you're now working also closely with industry. And so how did that come about? Was that something that came about organically? Was that something you pursued later in your career um, after a primarily clinical or academic career prior? Or was that something that was integrated into your practice and into your life from the beginning when you started as an ophthalmologist and out in practice? Yeah, I could not have predicted exactly where I am now when I started, and I didn't plan to be exactly where I am now when I when I started. Every essentially every position that I've taken has been presented to me from the prior platform, if you will. So. Uh, I, I was at uh, UCSF and then sort of did my fellowship and stayed on faculty there because I liked them, they liked me, etc. Uh, and then when I went, ultimately joined, left UCSF to go into industry, I went to Pfizer because an ex-medical school classmate was there and running the, the neuroscience division at Pfizer. And so he hired me to be in that division and to sort of help them assess their pipeline for ophthalmic applications. And then while I was there at Pfizer, I was still seeing patients a day a week, which I've done ever since I left UCSF. I was seeing patients a day a week in Larry Annucci's practice. And there I met David Geyer, who was one of the co-founders of um, iTech. As I expressed my sort of discontent with big pharma and Pfizer, he said, well, if you're not happy there, why don't you join iTech? And so then I was the 20th employee, 20th hire at iTech. I joined them very early. And then at iTech, I met the venture capitalists who were fun, funding iTech. And when iTech got acquired and I left, they in turn hired me. So it's it's really uh, noteworthy, and I think it's most people's careers that you sort of you go. Your next step is often one that you've already seen or been connected to. Mm-hmm. That's why I tell people when they're looking for fellowships, you should do a fellowship where you want to work or end or live, because the odds of them hiring you is much, much greater than trying to leave a fellowship program to go to another area, especially if you want to stay in academics. And a known commodity is always important. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your, your current projects and how your current life is structured. So how much of, of your activities are industry or pharma related? How much of you, are you still clinically active? What does a typical week or month look like for you? Yes, as I mentioned before we started the recording, my real job, most of what I do is venture capital. It's at a a life science venture capital firm called Claris Funds. Uh, We do um, broad biotech investing now. We have done in the past device and diagnostic investing. Uh, Probably 10 to 15% of it is eye-related, and and that's largely because I'm here and I have a strong sort of interest in that space. We've done a number of eye investments, some of which you'd, you'd recognize, SARCODE, 
was the company that developed Zydra, which is now proof for dry eye. Um, Airy has Ropressa and other drugs for glaucoma. And there are about five or six um, ophthalmology companies that we've funded and have done well over time. Asbitec, um, uh was was sold to um, Alcon Novartis and now has that new VEGF agent, which is going sort of in phase three. So we've we've done well in ophthalmology, um, and I think um, it's a strong interest of Claris. About a day a week, I split my other activities between patient care and teaching. So uh, I'm probably from about 10 in the morning till 6 at night on Fridays, I see patients at um, West Coast Retina, um, and I do that with the fellows there. It's a teaching position for the fellows who, who train there uh, nominally. They're CPMC fellows, but they spend all their time with West Coast Retina. And um, in the morning on Friday, I teach at one of the institutions, either Stanford or CPMC or, or Proctor, and give lectures. I don't, I don't operate. I haven't operated uh, since... Um, I left the Proctor Foundation in 2001, so purely medical, uh, mostly mostly uveitis, and among my particular uveitis practice is about 80% posterior segment. You talked about the way your career developed was, as many do, is the stepping stones, you know, one step leads to the next. Um, a very common refrain you'll hear from fellows graduating fellowship to attendings or a few years out, or, you know, maybe not completely happy, or they're looking for something more than just their clinical practice, um, whether or not they teach or whether or not they're academic, is like, oh, I want to become involved in industry. And that's true in all fields of medicine, but in ophthalmology specifically, people are like, oh, I want to become involved in industry. And I think a lot of us don't necessarily know what that means. You know, that It's like a kind of a throwaway term, but there's a lot more to it, a lot more diversity there, I'm sure, than, than just saying that. Um, but let's say someone was at the stage of their career, whether they're leaving fellowship, they're in training, or, or they're even a few years out and they want to kind of reshape their career, how would you go about doing that? And what, what are kind of the pros and cons of leaving a more clinically based practice and then going, like you said, working, you started with big pharma and then moved on, but kind of working for a bigger type company as an employee um, rather than as a pure clinical physician? Yeah, so I get these calls probably two or three times a month from both young and old retina specialists who want to do something different or new or, or add on to some extent, some industry experience. And for the young ones in particular, but sometimes the old ones, my first question is, do you like medicine and do you like what you're doing? It's a real bifurcation. If you if you don't like medicine, then you, sh- you should leave medicine and you have to pick a sector that is hopefully going to give you something you do like to do. And then you're really talking about transitioning to a full-time job in either, either investment or pharma or startup. Uh, and that's that's a big and disruptive and challenging transition, especially for the older someone gets. If you're a 58-year-old retina specialist and you want to become a venture capitalist, well, it's not going to happen, right? Because it's going to be four to six years before you know what you're doing. Now you're in mid-60s. Uh, they, people just don't hire people in their mid-60s to take a junior learning role in venture capital or in the banking industry or in finance. Um, if you're a 58-year-old retina specialist, you might be able to get a job uh, at a big pharma company in, on their team in retina or, or maybe even leading it, especially if you've been a thought leader and you're at the top of your field. But again, it, the, those are hard transitions. If you don't like medicine and you're young, then you can do it, but you're starting over. You know, they, People value and respect the, the MD and the residency, and it's helpful, but 
you're coming into, let's say, a clinical development role at Roche or Genentech or Novartis, you know, that's a very, it's a junior role, and you're looking at a 20-year arc to, to ascend through that hierarchy, which is a totally different hierarchy. So that's kind of, do you do you want to leave medicine and do something full-time? If you like uh, retina, you like medicine, my, my advice to young people is make sure you master it. Take the time to master it and uh, ex- excel at it, because everyone I know who has had a great career in medicine and then become a, an innovator and entrepreneur at the highest level. And I'm talking about Gene Dewans, Mark Blumenkrantz, uh, Dick Lindstrom, these, these sorts of people, people names, you know, respect. And these are the people, most of the young people would aspire to be. They had long careers where all they did was clinical medicine and academics before they started to explore entrepreneurship and then ultimately transition into doing as much or more entrepreneurship. And some of them, like Dick Lindstrom, who's, I don't know if you know Dick, but he, he, he's just an amazingly talented and, and uh, poly-gifted um, poly person. Um, he has a full clinical practice and always. He's probably in 60s or 70s. I don't even know how old he is. I'd guess 70. He, he's full-time refractive surgery glaucoma. Um, and is probably on the board of two dozen companies or a dozen. I don't know how he does what he does, but he and, and owns a construction business in Minnesota, which is one of the biggest construction business. So it, it's. Um, but my point to get back to my point is when you're trying to decide if you really like retina and medicine. And by the way, there's a, a lot to like there and not to to take for granted. Master that first, and then start to explore um, slowly as you're getting your sea legs in in retina, joining a practice, becoming good, uh, honing your surgical skills, which you've just started to, to master in fellowship. And then you'll extend slowly, and you'll ha- there you'll have to pick what you want to do. Do you want to, let's say, you have a day a week or half a day a week? Do you want to start getting involved with clinical trials? Well, it helps to be at a practice that has that set up, and and then it's easy to start to be involved in clinical trials to give those presentations to start to work with industry. Uh, do you really, do you want to be a part-time CMO for a startup company or on the advisory board for a bigger company or even smaller company, which maybe has a, a little less time than a, a chief medical officer or a clinical role? I would say all those are possible over time, but I would not take someone who's just finished a fellowship two years just joined the practice. And by the way, that practice is expecting the, that junior person to be the breadwinner for the practice and to demonstrate that they, they deserve to be um, brought on as a full-time partner over whatever the buy-in period is. I would not encourage someone at doing that buy-in period to look for two days a week of doing something else. Uh, the more you diffuse yourself as a junior person, the less anyone's going to take you seriously, frankly. That's good advice, yeah. Junior people have to, they have to, master their craft. If you if you like medicine and retina, you've done the fellowship, you really enjoy it, find a great department or practice, excel to the best of your ability, and slowly over an arc of 10 to 15 years, you can extend into industry and, and entrepreneurship. You know, industry is so integral to everything we do in retina. Um, you know, the innovations, the trials, the medications now, especially from a medical retina's perspective. Um, so, it, there's kind of this this balance between being involved and and staying integral. And if again, as you said, there's different ways to become involved in industry, but also avoiding conflicts of interest and avoiding situations where you don't want to compromise the integrity of either your image or your actually 
what what you are presenting if let's say you're a teacher or uh, someone who goes to meetings and presents and you know we have disclosures we have things that we list but again one of the things younger people even you know again you said you may have older people interested in this um how do you kind of maintain that right so so what are kind of the tricks that you use to kind of be involved in trials or industry perspective but in an ethical non-conflicted manner And, and how do you navigate that because i'm sure depending on who you present to, you're going to get different levels of, of cynicism versus openness to what the message you're trying to present. It's challenging. Let me just start by saying that I don't generally think or even largely believe that industry is nefarious and, and um, manipulating and looking to misrepresent what they have. I, I think there are, industry is as ethical as medicine, largely. And yes, there are some unethical physicians and private and academic practices, and there are some industry people who don't always do the most ethical thing. But generally, industry, they generate their data, for example, as clinical data. They analyze it, and then they look for people to present it um, and to be involved. The, the dilemma is that, that industry asks, say, say retina specialists, to, who, let's say, were involved with the trial, typically to those the highest enrolling physicians who have the sort of privilege and honor of presenting the data, they ask them to present the data sets, and they frankly just present them with the data sets. And the, the sort of chink in the armor, if you will, is that the presenting physicians have, no, have had no role in the analysis of the data. They haven't seen the primary data. They don't know how it's been cherry-picked or presented or in some ways spun or misrepresented. So um, it's... It, and that's why in some instances you'll see some physicians who don't just won't do that. They won't present for industry because they don't have access to that data. That's a rare physician. Uh, Lee Jampol, I, I don't want to speak for Lee, but Lee is sort of a sort of a very high standard of what he'll present and what he'll say because he, he wants to understand completely what he's saying and presenting. Most retina specialists just take the deck and present it, to be quite frank, and they assume that what they've been asked to present is, the, is a fair representation of the data. It isn't to say they don't think about the data that they're seeing, but very few of them see all of it or see the, the sausage making that went into presenting the, preparing the graphs and the, the presentation. And so it's a little challenging. The sort of standard out there is that if you, you sort of assume you're working with an, an, an ethical company or corporation um, and you present it and as the data is presented to you, you present it in a balanced fashion. You don't overstate it or spin it. Then I think all is good. And you should, people who do that should stand up proudly and be able to do that. And the, the good companies will, will respect that and, and uh, have you present it as such. But there is, it, it's hard sometimes to, to not have a conflict of interest or to, to at least remove all conflict because you just don't have access to all the data. You know, the last topic I wanted to ask you about was OIS. Um, and OIS, I want you to tell us a little bit about what it is, how it came about, and um, how physicians can kind of use it as an educational tool? What are the ways to kind of participate? And what's, what, what are sort of the topics that are covered in a typical OIS session? So this is the 10th year of OIS. I think we've had seven, somewhere, somewhere between 15 and 20 meetings overall. We have a big one at AAO, which has about 1,000 people. We have one at ASCRS, which touches mostly on anterior segment issues, cornea, refractive, glaucoma, dry eye, et cetera. That has about six, 700 people. And then we have one that we do with in the retina space. It's To date, has been been sort of uh, aligned with ASRS, but we're not sure if we're going to keep it there or move it. We haven't yet decided. That has about 300 people. 
and focuses, as you might think, on retina. Um, the meeting is a mix of industry, about 70% investors, about 20%, and thought leaders, about 10%. Those numbers are rough. Maybe it's 60, 20, 20 or something. And then there's a smattering of service providers who come to it. And the the vision for the meeting was always to bring together people who foster and promote innovation, which is the companies, uh, the, the thought leaders who are entrepreneurial and the investors who provide the money. And that's what we do. So it's it's kind of different from from clinical meetings, which are most most what clinicians see. Uh, the, the first half is sort of bulleted, anywhere from five to eight minute company, private company presentations. And the, the afternoon tend to be panel discussions on topics that are relevant to how to have the business cycle succeed. Um, so clearly that's interesting to the companies who make up most of the people there. But I, I think that the physicians who come and they're biased because they're the more entrepreneurial physicians, they, um, they also like it. They like learning about how the, the money flows and how the financing works. They like learning about business models and plans that tend to work or not. And about the issues that challenge innovation broadly. Um, for some clinicians, those who, you want to see patients and take care of them, but really aren't as keen to hear about the latest emerging innovations or about the businesses that, that make that happen. Eh, I would say they. I've had some friends who've come and said, you know, it was interesting, but it, it's not what I follow. So I really kind of got lost in it and they don't have an interest to learn it. So that I, I would say is the minority. Most people who come find it fascinating and something that they haven't really spent any time thinking about. So I would encourage people who haven't been to at least try one, and the best one to try is probably, um, if you're a retina specialist, either the one that's uh, aligned with ASRS or some other retina meaning, or the big one at AAO. Perfect. Last last thing before I let you go, if you had to look into your crystal ball and um, pick out the innovation that you think is most going to define retina in the next, let's say, 15 to 20 years, um, what are you most excited or about or anticipating? It doesn't have to be specific. Yeah, it, in, a, in the broadest of sense, it's, it's going to be sustained release. We, we already have that to a large extent with uh, the corticosteroids and the implants that do that. But that, and, and we're seeing it now, we just saw the data for the, the Lucentis Reservoir that was developed by uh, Angela, Angela McFarland, Gene Dewan, and their team at the Foresight Labs, and now it's moving into Phase 3. But that, and there are others, and but that will extend to gene therapy as well, which will be sort of the ultimate sustained release, could be forever sustained release. And you may have seen, I think it was last week or the week before, the Regenix Bio presented some very intriguing data on their AAV8 vector, which synthesizes a fab-like molecule uh, to inhibit uh, VEGF. Uh, so, you know, it's going to it's going to go from the, the the implants like Osrdex, Redacert, et cetera, et cetera, to this reservoirs that are refillable to gene therapy, and where these genes will these these vectors will be producing therapeutics like fabs, uh, which I think is just going to transform the, the space over time. And we don't entire, entirely know how it's going to play out, but that's going to be that's the largest impact I think I see coming over the, the next five, ten, fifteen years. Well, Dr. Cunningham, thanks so much for your time and for uh, carving time. I know you're very busy, and uh, we'll let you get back to um, both your clinical and uh, research and industry activities that you've so eloquently uh, explained here. And again, anyone who's interested, there's still plenty of time to register to attend the OIS 
session at the Academy coming up in October in Chicago. So we'll put a little blurb in the description with a link to OIS and uh, explain a little more about what it is if people wanted to attend. So Dr. Cunningham, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 124 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. you also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from our pupils. Also on the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the iTunes Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page and find us in the podcast section of the iTunes Store and Google Play. We are on Twitter at Retina Podcast, and to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We really love getting feedback, both on things we can do better and things we are already doing well. Anyone subscribes, we love the reviews you've left already. If you feel free to leave more positive comments, it will be helpful to us as we go forward. Many thanks to Dr. Emmett Cunningham for joining me. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Mike Menencasa, and Angela Chang for producing a great episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.